what we're doing over the course of these April Sundays leading toward Easter Sunday is to spend some time in the book of Revelation and allowing for the revelation to give us insight into the resurrected Jesus Christ. This chapter 1 that you and I are looking at last Sunday as well as today gives us some perspective that I think elsewhere we're not going to be able to find. Because here is the advantage now of Jesus Christ, the Ascended One, and he's revealing himself in all of his glory to John the Apostle, who wrote, of course, the Gospel of John, First and Second, Third John, and Revelation. And he's revealing himself in this ascended state and wants John, who's exiled on Patmos, to be able to understand how much the risen Savior has to do with the trials and the tribulations that John and the churches he writes to are experiencing. So this morning, if you're going through trials, you're going through tribulations, if you're going through intense challenges of life, my prayer is that God's word this morning is going to minister, it's going to speak to your heart. You're going to allow it to simply saturate your heart with God's grace. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame, flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you've seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, Seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
So this morning we're going to look at these verses and ask how do they not only prepare us for Easter, but how do they prepare our hearts for the challenges that come our way? Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come into your presence, we're coming into your presence as sinful people. We came into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead, not dormant. And what was necessary was an utter transformation of our hearts, not by our works, but by Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. Validated by when the God the Father raised God the Son on that third day. There are a variety of needs. There are a variety of challenges that we bring into a worship service like this. But you know the needs. You see the tears on the pillows at night that nobody else sees. And you rejoice in the joy we experience when there are things that seem to connect and we, and we realize that it is all because of you. Warm these hearts of ours. Engage these minds of ours. Shape these wills of ours. Because, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. She writes, His muscles ached like nothing he'd ever felt as he passed mile 13. Pushing against a runner's wall, had strong headwind. It was like running uphill the whole way. But as a distraction, Dr. Gupta reminded himself, as he often has these past four months, why he voluntarily subjected himself to such torture. If his former patients could survive twin explosions, multiple surgeries, physical therapy, and the emotional strain of last April's Boston Marathon bombings, he thought. He could certainly run a few, okay, 26 miles in their honor. For you see, Gupta, a trauma surgeon, helped coordinate the response at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, one of five trauma centers that received patients that day. Now, Gupta is one of 70 Beth Israel staff members training for this year's Boston Marathon. At Boston Medical Center, the marathon team numbers are 105 this year. At Brigham and Women's Hospital, the medical team is up to 122 participants. More than 200 are running for Massachusetts General Hospital's team. And like Dr. Gupta, are tackling their first marathon. But most of the medical personnel talk about the solidarity they feel with last year's victims, whether they treated them or not. The fellowship, quote, with the sufferers. Unquote. And when I came across that, my mind's parked upon these verses. 
Because in verse 9, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, informs us that I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Now that word partner that you have, if you're using the English Standard Version, comes from a Greek word, soon koinonas. We get koinonia from it. It carries with the idea of to be in fellowship with. In the rich book of Acts, you and I are told of the church, the early church, and the tremendous fellowship that was there, the koinonia. And this kind of koinonia, this kind of fellowship, involves two main aspects. Sharing something with one another and sharing in something with one another. And now what we find here is that John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos because that isle was reserved for those who were viewed as in rebellion to the gods of the Roman Empire. As we noted last week, Christians were viewed as atheists because they failed in the estimation of the Roman emperor to believe in the Roman gods. It would not bow to them. So that when military warfare seemed to be working against the Roman cause, the Christians were to be blamed. The emperor is Domitian, and Domitian is reigning at the point in which John is on this isle. And as John is on this isle, having been exiled because he has been proclaiming the word of God, according to verse 9, He knows that it cannot remain within him because you nor I are called to be a reservoir of truth, but rather a channel of truth. He sees the mainland, modern-day Turkey. He wants to get the word out. And so he writes in verse 10 that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Already a taste of resurrection thinking. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Where are these churches? And where are you, John? Take a look at this map. As you look at that map, you're able, if you've got keen eyes, to be able to spot, uh, there's Patmos out in the Aegean. And we've got a road system. And this road system that's marked out for you at this point was the postal system established by the emperor himself, endorsed by him. There are seven cities that are listed here visualized here. And they're arranged in a certain sequence owing to geographical consideration. They're situated on principal Roman roads that carried postal carriers. Arriving at Ephesus from the island of Patmos, a carrier could go north to Smyrna and Pergamum. There he could turn east and go along the Roman artery to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, 
Laodicea. And now what John is saying is that I am a fellow sufferer with you. I am going to be a spiritual marathoner with you in the trials of life. But we're in this together. I may be exiled geographically, but not spiritually. I'm one with you in the tribulations that are and are coming our way in intensifying forms. He sets the stage. And so what I want to do with you as we're delving still deeper into this text is to draw what we'll call two strength finders that I think have modern-day application to where you and I are at and what you and I face day in, day out. And the first flows out of verse 12 to verse 16. The number one, when facing trials, you and I should find strength in how our resurrected Savior here is portrayed. Now, there's going to be a key word that continues to pop up in these verses that I don't want you to overlook. It's the word like, L-I-K-E. He's going to be saying, John, is that when he has this vision of the resurrected Savior, that he doesn't have the exact verbal skills, so the best he can do is to take the visual in verbal form and utilize a simile. The word like is part of his vocabulary here. So when I turn to see the voice in verse 12 that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, as you know, as we covered last week, in the book of Revelation there are about 400 Old Testament allusions. Almost one perverse which means you've got to be steeped in the Old Testament in order to really appreciate the depth of the book of Revelation and its relevance to modern-day terms. The lampstands here Well, of course, in the time in which Moses was getting the, was getting the blueprint for tabernacle leading to temple matters. The lampstand was an illustration of light penetrating the dark, But the candelabra was one composite whole. Here, what John is describing is is that there are seven lampstands, signifying, as we're going to see in a few minutes, that one per church on this postal route, that each congregation established by God is meant to distribute light in the midst of darkness, which is why you and I are here that in this dark chaos of the world that we find ourselves in, we are meant to be a lampstand, not only corporately on a Sunday, but a distribution basis throughout the course of the week, bringing light to the settings that God has positioned you in at work, in neighborhoods, in schools, or wherever. When lo and behold, you and I are informed here in verse 13 that in the midst of the lampstands, Mark this now. One like a son of man. Did you see that word like? 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, notice that phrase, son of man. We've been saying that there is an Old Testament strategy unfolding in the book of Revelation. Where have you come across this before? Let your mind go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And what I want you to notice here is how John on the Isle of Patmos, as he ministers to those who are hurting on the mainland, draws upon the historical teachings of his Old Testament and brings it home in their midst of trials. I saw in the night visions. I saw in the night visions, and behold, same idea that you will find here in the Revelation account of behold. With the clouds of heaven there came one like who? A son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Pause there. Pause there. What is the name of the current emperor at the time in which John has been exiled? Domitian. What is it that the Son of Man has just been given? Dominion. What God is saying to his herding follower on the Isle of Patmos Exiled for the word of God. Domitian does not have dominion. But rather the resurrected one has dominion over Domitian. Now ask yourself, at this point, if you're feeling overwhelmed by something in life, does it feel as though it has dominion over you? Who or what's your Domitian? Do you see the practical relevance of understanding that the resurrected one, the Son of Man, is prophesied in the book of Daniel to those who were where? In exile in the Old Testament. is now being used by God to this one exiled in the New Testament describing the Son of Man as having dominion over Domitian. That all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Already a foretaste of resurrection in those verses, you see. Astounding. But you know, when you read verse 13 and you spot the fact that in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of men, what also grips your attention in the gospel account is that nobody but nobody except Christ and Christ alone referred to Christ as the son of men. Take, for example, John chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, where now John himself, who would later be the writer of the book of Revelation, informs us that Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Mark this. 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. In verse 10, you and I were informed, I was in the Spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet. In verse 12, we're informed, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And now, John informs us that Jesus had said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and it's now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him all authority to execute judgment because he is what? The Son of Man. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's linking you to the vision of Daniel. And he's bringing the Son of Man imagery forward, full thrust. And as he does so, he's speaking to those who are overwhelmed by life. And he's saying that the one who came to die for our sins was raised on the third day. And so the one speaking is the second member of the Trinity. And now he's connecting the dots of the scriptures and connecting the dots for your life. So you don't feel disconnected in your own eye of Potmos experience, you see. feel disconnected. You need the Son of Man to speak to your heart. It's this long robe. It's a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. Mark this word. Like white wool. Mark it again, like snow. His eyes were what? Like a flame. Like a flame of fire. As when you look at that, and you can just imagine now this powerful experience for the one who is known as the beloved disciple John, who in his latter years must be at times in in more of a downward state, wondering why someone so close to Jesus, why would he be allowed on behalf of speaking for Jesus to be exiled on an aisle like this? I thought these were to be the golden years. Have you forgotten me? But then the voice breaks in and speaks in his time of exile. And he does that for us through his word. His feet were what? Like burnished bronze refined refined in a furnace. And his voice was what? Like the roar of many waters. G. Campbell Morgan, tremendous expositor of another, of another era, recalled a time in which he was asked to speak in the Niagara Falls region. He was from London, you see. Brilliant in teaching the Word of God. He was known for a powerful, resonating voice. But when he spoke around the Niagara Falls area, 
there was something about his voice as it was connected to the waterfall that allowed for the truth of God's word to be heard in ways in which people had, they said, never processed before. And Dr. Campbell says, and my mind was taken back to this verse, where you and I are informed that his voice is like the roar of many waters. Position yourself next to a powerful waterfall, maybe in your past that you've experienced. But I want you to see what comes next, and I don't want us to miss it. Check out verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Let's let this coin appear on the screen. And let me tell you a little bit of a story behind that coin. It's a Roman coin issued by, issued by Domitian. He had a son. And this son of Domitian was to be the heir of Domitian's empire. Domitian wanted to be known as the one who is Lord and God. But his son died in the year 83, and so a golden coin was established in honor of his son. The dead prince on this coin is sitting on a globe of heaven. There are seven stars, seven stars, indicating the seven planets a symbol of his global dominion. Signifying that after a short life on earth, this was a heavenly child that had been raised to heaven's thrones and would rule and reign over the cosmos. He chose a coin. The word coin comes from the word koinonia. When we want fellowship, we need to be in circulation with one another. Coins are meant to be in circulation. So now, what John has done at this point is that he has taken something whereby the people on the mainland could simply pull out of their pockets and ponder the significance of what Domitian is claiming regarding his son who has died, and comparing that to the sovereign God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, who sent his son to die, but three days later would be raised from the dead. And behind that, you and I now are given a new understanding, a deeper appreciation for the sovereign capacity of the one that has true dominion, even over Domitian. Now we're awed. Because when you're interpreting Revelation, not only do you have to allow for the historical to inform the book, you also have to allow for the current political to inform the book. And that's what John is doing. 
as he now sends this out on the postal circuit, sharing the good news of the risen Savior. But he, he, he's, he's got more to say. And so he moves from that right hand that held seven stars, doesn't he? And he shifts his attention and our attention now to the mouth. When verse 16, from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And look at what appears next on the screen. And now what's before our eyes is the Roman sword. But what he is doing here now is that he is emphasizing what the Romans would want to emphasize. That militarily, that sword was an illustration of their authority. What John is saying through this revelation is that there is one who has dominion over Domitian, who has ultimate authority, and that his word, his word flowing from his mouth is like a sharp, two-edged sword. So we're not taken aback or surprised when we get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, where in that future account we're informed that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod. With a rod, you see, of iron. You take a deep breath. Is he done with the description? Notice the ending of verse 16. And his face was what? Like the sun shining in full strength. Have you ever made a connection in your mind between the book of Revelation and the Mount of Transfiguration? Check out with me Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 and 2 and verse 9. John was there, you know. John was there. Jesus allowed John to have some spiritual prepping for that time in which he would have to run his own Boston Marathon, so to speak. And notice here that after, ironic, six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. We have this italicized for us all. And his face shone like the sun. You're connecting the dots, aren't you? And you're looking at the end of verse 16. His face was like the sun, shining in not partial strength, full strength. His clothes became white as light as you make comparisons and connections with this account, this visual account unfolding in front of our very eyes in Revelation chapter 1. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, what? Tell no one the vision. Fascinating choice of words. Until whom? The Son of Man is raised. From where? The dead. And what is it that we saw in the book of Daniel just a bit ago? That it would be the Son of Man who would receive dominion. 
And here now, he's connecting the dots for us. One vision to the next. And showing how all this unfolds in front of our very eyes. If you're feeling so overwhelmed by the sinful world in which we live. This world doesn't have dominion over you. The suffering your family is experiencing right now has not have dominion. The Son of Man has dominion. See how personal this is. There's a second strength finder here. The number two, when facing trials, you and I, we need to find strength in what our resurrected Savior has accomplished. Not only in how our resurrected Savior is portrayed, but also in what our resurrected Savior has accomplished. In verse 17, you and I informed that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Always be struck with the responses of the glory of God throughout the Scriptures. When Isaiah was was overwhelmed with the vision in Isaiah chapter 6 of the one enthroned, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was, he was undone, the Hebrew wording informs us, doesn't it? John was, uh, he knew how to fish. He'd probably tell us, I'm just as good as Peter. But you see, they'd had a long night, and they were coming up empty. And so Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep, let your down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets at your word. And they got so much fish, the boat began to sink, and Simon Peter saw it, fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished. And John was with him. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But I want you to notice how the risen Savior goes to the core of your emotional need at this moment. He laid his right hand on on me. The same one who's described in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. Not only do you see authority, you see real personal ministry side by side. So he takes that right hand, places it on me, and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And now the living one speaks truth to you and me. And in three succinct statements now, he dramatically addresses the ultimate issues of life. What are the three succinct statements? Number one, I died. Simple, profound. 
not dormant. I died. Later, John would add more informing theology to this, where in chapter 5, there would be this tremendous group of singing singers around the throne. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. But he doesn't leave us there. Because he then adds a second succinct statement. He goes on to say this, Behold, I am alive forevermore. And for all of us who are wrestling with matters of life and death, we've got to go when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death to the one who says, I understand. I died. I am alive forevermore. It's been another very complicated week, and so I kept my phone, cell phone activated to all the various events happening. Got to follow the masters, you know. And my mind went back to uh, an interview some years ago. This Masters is different. Mickelson's not there in the final rounds, and Tiger Woods, for other reasons, is absent physically. But when Tiger Woods won the Masters tournament years ago and had four major titles in a row under his belt, an interview unfolded after his various victories, and I'm now looking at a newspaper account where Tiger was asked what he would say to Bobby Jones if he walked in the room. Bobby Jones was the one, of course, who founded the Augusta National Golf Tournament in 1932. He died in 1971. What would you say to Bobby Jones if he walked into the room? Tiger Woods thought for a moment and then responded, quote, I would ask him how he came back. If I go out, all I want to know is how to come back. Unquote. In the ultimate master's tournament of life, there is only one who is truly wearing the green jacket? The one who has ultimate dominion over the domitians of this world. And you take a deep breath. As you're staring at the valley of the shadow of death life experiences. And you've got this one with authority, and he's got a third succinct statement to send to your direction. I was dead. I died. I am, I am alive forevermore. But thirdly, I have the keys of death and Hades. 
Ever lost your keys? I know the feeling. Had he remained in that grave, he would have lost the keys. Had he succumbed in that wilderness to the evil one, he would have lost his keys. But on that third day, he validates his claims. God the Father validates the Son. And so even though Domitian wants his son to be known as the one who's the holder of the seven stars, his son's still in his grave. But the Son of Man's wearing the glory of ultimate dominion. I died. I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And so he takes a deep breath, I'm sure. Jesus says, right there for all these things that you've seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angel means messenger in the Greek. Don't overlook the fact we're dealing with a postal route of seven churches. That word was used to describe the carrier of truth from one city to the next in the Roman postal system. And seven lampstands illuminating the darkness with their light. Seven churches. So Gupta, he runs the marathon. He could certainly run a few, he says to himself. Okay, 26 miles, but in their honor. For as he puts it, most of us are talking about the solidarity that we feel with last year's victims, whether we treated them or not, as fellow sufferers. And John says, I, John, your brother and partner, literally fellow sufferer in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that is where, not in Patmos, in Jesus. Let's stand together. Keep pressing truth into our hearts, Father. We're teachable. Trials and teaching are meant to go together. Give us the full sense of your glory. And like John, when we're overwhelmed, we praise you. We've got a personal risen Savior who reaches down and says, Fear not.
and brings comfort as he delivers truth. Thank you, Father. Jesus Christ has dominion. And as we prepare our hearts for Easter Sunday morning, we praise you for the one who holds the seven stars. In Jesus' name. God bless you.